Hi there, and welcome to the Performance Lab podcast. My name is Kyrie Ellison. I'm a first-year graduate student at Sarah Lawrence College in the theater department. And I'm Joanna Eisenberg, a second-year graduate at Sarah Lawrence, also in theater. Today we have with us our theater artist, Deb Margarlin. Hi. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about our workshop that we just did today? Today's workshop uh, invited people into the practice of automatic writing. This is a practice um, that I consider to be essential to the creation of material for theater because it leads to access to the source from which um, resonant, rich material comes and can always come. It's a bottomless supply and automatic writing is one of the ways you get there. So today, people honored me by allowing me to invite them uh, to explore that process. It's a process of writing without stopping, without worrying if it's any good, without crossing anything out, just to shake the tree and let the fruit fall. And that's what we worked on today. And I, it felt to me as if people touched some parts of themselves from which they could work if they chose. Is it something that you incorporate in your practice regularly? Absolutely. All my shows are written. Uh, by my shaken down myself through automatic writing. I can say without exception, over the past 25 years, I have written all my material. It has originated from my being able to discover what I could not die without having talked about um, through automatic writing. Desire is my best editor. It's my best generator. It's my best director. Because it is the, the only original thing any of us has is those things that compel us towards speech. I always ask myself, what can I not die without having talked about? And when I discover my desire for speech, I know I'm always on it. Can you tell us what you wish you'd known uh, before starting on this path as a performance artist? I wish I had known that many of the images that came to me were artistic in nature. No one ever told me that. I did not realize that those things that lit me up in ways that I noticed nobody else thought that was interesting or important. There wasn't anybody to let me know that these were symptoms of an artistic vision. So now I make it my job to try to save people time by letting them notice those aspects of their thoughts, obsessions, and images that actually are symptoms of artistry. I wish somebody had, I could have saved at least 10 years if I had had uh, a tip-off about that. When I was honored by being asked to give the commencement speech at Hampshire College, I asked myself the question, what would I have liked to know? The question you just asked me. And it was that. It was that. And it was also that desire and talent are the same thing. To the extent that you have desire, you have the gift. If you sort of want to, you sort of can't. If you are hot on the case, it will happen. The desire makes things happen. It has agency. It has power. I'm sorry to say that fear also has agency and power. Fear and desire attract their own object. I, it sounds mystical, but it's actually very literal. It could be true of a motorcycle. Let's say you're desperate and you're obsessed with motorcycles. You think about them. You go to the motorcycle show. go to the store where they sell them. You touch them with your hand. You will get a motorcycle. You will attract this motorcycle to yourself. I personally have no interest in a motorcycle, but I'm just saying. Desire attracts its own object. Mm -hmm. 
Um, with that in mind, you won a Sustained Excellence in Performance Award. Yeah. <laughs> How do you maintain that desire um, and maintain doing work throughout a career? Well, as we were talking about in the workshop, our work is our life. I'm a person that doesn't get over anything. I don't get over anything. I don't mean just horrible things. I mean, I don't get over great things. I'm still alive in every moment of joy I've had. I'm alive in those moments. I'm alive in the grief and grievance that I've had. So there's an endless supply of inspiration. Every day amazes me. Every day I wake up shocked that I have children. I can't believe I had the privilege of giving birth to these people. I can't believe I've done that. I can't believe any of it. So I was reading this comment that Bill Irwin made. Bill Irwin, the physical comedian and great actor. He said, we theater people have a coping mechanism. When we are working through something, we make a theater piece about it. So aren't we all always working through stuff? This life is very challenging. It's full of, full of luscious things that we cannot have, difficult things that we are forced to have, um, and general radiance and brilliance from sources we cannot fathom, tiny, miraculous things. So this keeps me going, all things being equal, which they aren't always. There are, I think there are years that ask and years that answer. There's times of speech and times of silence. But I, I feel very privileged when I'm given the use of the hall to stand up and speak. And I'm also, I consider it a radical political act for a woman to stand on the stage and say what she feels like saying. I do not take this for granted, nor should you. It is a radical act for a person of color, for a woman, for a person, of a, a gay person or a transgender person, for those of us who have been disenfranchised traditionally and institutionally, it is a radical act for us to stand on stage and speak. And I am thrilled to arrogate to myself the right to do that. I often stand there and don't do anything. This also feels radical to me. You know how women are always supposed to be rushing around getting the tea things or something? Mm-mm. I just stand there sometimes. Read it and weep. I'm not your traditional Miss Thing or beauty or something. I just stand there. Sorry. <laughs> here I am. Hineni. Here I am. Um, so all these things impel me forward. The social agency of theater. It's power for social change. Sometimes it's easy to feel very helpless. However, as we make theater, we create community. I felt in our workshop today a tremendous sense of community. There already is a community. It preceded me by far. However, a different kind of community sprung up among us as we filled in the blanks and listened to each other sniffling and crying or laughed our head off or whatever we did. This is the beauty of theater. It's enough to keep me going. <laughs> Mike Cantor gave it a really good Josh one time about Hineni, about the specialness yes. that there's many different ways to say I'm here, but Hineni is... Hineni is... Mm, mm, yeah. You know, I have to tell you, 
I came, I, w- I took a wrong turn with the dog. It was a deliberate wrong turn. I, I have no sense of direction. But something said, well, I'm sure I'll figure it out. <laughs> and the dog and I made a turn down a street. We never, and we came around, up a hill and around a corner. And in front of me, there was no one in the street. It's a suburban Republican, God help me, place. And this bush is on fire. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. And then, I, I mean, it was just, it was pretty stunning sight. And I looked up. You know, the way I imagine, but there I saw that a wire was on fire that had dropped down sparks, and I banged on this woman's door to let her know if she didn't get help, her whole house would burn down. She was very annoyed to come to the door when she saw me dressed in my rags, but I did save her life, or rather, whatever happened to save her life. Hineni. Could you tell us what your favorite piece that you've worked on has been and what is your favorite memory related to that project? I did a piece called Index to Idioms. Our au pair, I had an au pair because I was teaching a lot. I had little kids. She came home with a list of idioms in the English language and they were so embarrassing. They seemed like warts on the surface of the language. They, They were awful. And then I was thinking about these idioms And I was thinking about how we don't hear the language. They go underneath language to signify without any reference to themselves. For example, the phrase, cut it out. You don't think of cutting or anything. Just say, stop that crap. Stop it. But in fact, cut it out. That's what I said when I was giving birth to my son and they they sent my partner away and I was just lying there and they put straps and wires and tubes and the nurses were laughing in the hall. I started screaming for help, but they're like, please quiet down, you're disturbing the other patients. I was like, is this lunch for the Duchess of Windsor or is this a labor room? Finally, I said, okay, get in here. You bitches, get in here. You get my doctor, you get my partner and you cut this thing out, cut it out, do it. This place will be a shoe store. I'll just I'll destroy you and everything you stand for. You get the doctor and you cut this thing out, cut it out. Like so I took this language and elevated it to a li- level where we heard it. I am sure the phrase cut it out came from a laboring woman. In any case, I used it to tell the story of of parenthood. I would take a different idiom and elevate it to a literal level. And the creation of this show, I had, it was so, such a joy. My director, Mary Milwee, um, this woman who worked with us as stage manager and the guy who worked with us technically, and it was the most beautiful work group. The show was, it filled me with joy. I was doing and saying those things I love to do and say about the tenderest aspects of my life as a mother of two children. As a, as, a, as a questing human being. We would lay on the stage, the four of us, and laugh. I have the most beautiful images of my collaboration in this very, very extraordinary, intimate group of collaborators. That was a beautiful experience, getting a show up. It was up at the, at the Culture Project in downtown New York. Um, I loved the process of my last solo piece called Eight Stops. Eight Stops title came from an experience I had on the subway in Philadelphia. I had just gone to watch the 76ers basketball game. I'm a basketball freak for reasons I won't bore you with. (laughs) 
The 76ers at that time, they pay you to come to the game. There's nobody in the place. There's a guy selling popcorn and some drunk guy. That's it. They, they couldn't win a game. So you could sit right down on the floor. So after they lost, which they did, they weren't even paying attention to the ball. They were on their cell phone. It's just bad. And I got on the subway, and there was a little boy staring at me. And I could tell he needed something from me. And I said, did you enjoy the game? He said, oh, yes. He had an accent. And then he said, which team did you support? And I said, oh, the home team. The 70 said, yes, I as well. Well, as the conversation went on, it was clear that this kid, he was with a woman who was not his mother, who had her eye on marrying this little boy's father. He was from Scotland, and he was deracinated from his home. And, and I, he was like, I could tell I had eight stops to raise this kid. Eight stops to get it done. Eight stops to let him know that he was loved, that he was lovely, that his mother was within him, that his mother country was within him, that it would be okay. I had eight stops to get that done. That's where the title came from. That piece, the development of that piece was beautiful. It began uh, in Philadelphia at the Kimmel Center. A bunch of us were paid to come and write. Who pays us to come and write? It was part of a Dale Orlander Smith writing workshop. And at the end, you were supposed to present a little bit of it so people could see what you'd been working on. And everyone had their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their director. I didn't have anybody. So the guy who coordinated this workshop said, well, I'll help you. Come on downstage when you say this or that. And he ended up directing the play. And that play has had a very, very nice long life. It's gone to many colleges. I did it at the uh, Cherry Lane Theater in New York. Mm -hmm. I've traveled and toured with that show, and it's had a beautiful life. So that also is a very beautiful memory. And when you were working with Split Bridges, I, one of the things I read is that you didn't apply for any grants. And uh, that instead you just got jobs to pay for things. Um, and other than finding the miracle of Kimmel Center, which I wrote down, which will pay you to come theoretically and write, um, how, what advice would you give to new artists in terms of actively seeking funding, um, managing the paying job with the life's work? It helps to be young. Because then you can work all day at the ha-ha huh -huh and then spend your night in the theater. Then, you know, um, it's harder to do now than it used to be, it seems to me. Both my children moved to New Orleans because you can pay $240 for rent and drive a pedicab and then go to your theater company and collaborate on a devised piece. I work because I work. The reason I get work is because I do work. And I really think that there's something very sound about that. I have never believed in waiting to get permission to work. It goes against my nature to go to an audition and hope my hair looks okay, and then did my boobs look all right? I don't like that. I work because I work. That was Split Bridges' philosophy. We worked because we worked. And for a long time, we worked in front of nobody. We had this thing where if there's more people on stage than in the audience, we're going to cancel. But we never canceled. We, were, we performed for one homeless guy once in this 600-seat auditorium. It was the Bellevue Mental Hospital Auditorium. They lent it to us to do our eponymous play, Split Bridges. No one came. Um, we'd do it for two people. We just 
whoever came. And one day, Laurie Stone, the writer for The Village Voice, came and saw what we were working on. She wrote this huge thing in The Village Voice, and we were off and running. That's My advice to young people is to find a community of artists that you want to work in and just work, scrap, scramble, drive the pedicab, work in the type shop, do whatever you have to do, make your work, and when you're passionate, when you're working from the source, you will be noticed. It will come to pass. The universe will come and get you, but you have to have the drive to just work without work on spec, work because you can't not work. If we had waited for grants and... I mean, Peggy and Lois get grants now all the time. I, too, am commissioned or brought to various places, but only because we worked without any certainty of what was coming to us. So that is my advice. The community, find the community of people that you want to work with and make work. And as you drive forward, you will collect a history that precedes you in the public consciousness. You've said you've known Dan since the Second mm-hmm. World War. How did you meet? You know, we were colleagues in the downtown performance scene. The downtown performance scene, I'm sorry you weren't alive then. It was a really good scene. Like, you did, like, 15 minutes, and then you rode your bicycle to the next venue and did 15 minutes. We weren't stand-up comedians, but we had discreet pieces that were put on in these little clubs. Dan was a regular person in a lot of the places I performed in. Dixon Place, he may have mentioned this place to you, PS 122. That's where I came of age as an artist. That's where my work began to be known outside of Split Bridges, which we came to our own um, life as a company. But my life as a solo artist and as a playwright, apart from that group, came to life at PS 122. And Dan was a regular in all these places. We were often on bill, the same bill, the same benefit, the same place with mice in it or whatever. <laughs> He's, we, we came from the same, we were born in the same performance environment in New York. That's how I know him. One of the things I read is you wrote, you said something about also everything that you, I wrote down many, many things that you said to us this morning um, in our workshop that were just not just glowing pieces of wisdom, but the syntax of which are just just very nice. Um, And one of the things was, uh, that I read was grief of endless compassion. And I wrote, please, dear goodness, can we talk about that? (laughs) Um, And about what that entails and, and what that means. It's that ache, it's that, my father has this, He passed it to me, and I've passed it to my son. The inheritability of this trait is really interesting. It's my son, I noticed he would apologize to things for throwing them in the garbage. He'd say, well, I'm sorry you have to go, but you go and it's winter and it's cold, and you'll go in a truck and there'll be a warm, warm fire, and your friends will be there. There'll be lots of other orange juice containers. You know, it's that that my son would pick up a bird that had flown into the window and caress it, caress it. He'd say, it's just stunned, Mom. It's just stunned. And suddenly the bird would come to life and fly to a low branch. And he would keep watch over the bird until it ascended back into its life again. There's the part of me that will take in even the most unseemly insect 
seeing its desire to live and bring it to the outer lobby so it can continue as best it can. And then if it's cold out, I'll worry if it's too cold or if it's really an indoor bug and is having a suffering outside. It's this, my father has this. My father feels for every person he meets, for every, it, it, I, in my eight stop show, I talk about my son suffering from the grief of endless compassion. And, uh, and I too um, have that. It's, I'm interested in the inheritability of ideas and that's one of them. Do you think that this is one of your major strengths as an artist, this um, compassion, this empathy? I do. And, and I do. I noticed with some of the uh, prompts this morning, a lot of them seemed um, related to kind of that concept of inheritability. What are you inheriting from other people? Mm-hmm. Um, is that deliberate or are those just prompts that you're like, yeah, this is a prompt? There's no prompt that's, oh, this just a prompt. And for different people, it evokes different things. For you, it evoked a lot of deep stuff. <laughs> Loss, grief, joy. It evokes different things for different people. That's the point of it. Um, a prompt that for somebody seems quite matter of fact or quotidian for someone else is going to bring them to hysterical laughter or grief or weeping. Um, so the point is, that some of these, at least one or two or three of them, is going to bring you to a source, bring you to a place where you are talking f- about something you really need to talk about. That's the point of all of them. Any one of them or several of them might get you there. You're going to call me for some of these. <laughs> I've got, I've, I have hundreds of them. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's I will definitely be needing it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try and consolidate the call so you're not getting 16 yeah, on just one holler. day. <laughs> but, yeah. they, they're really helpful for devised theater. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if everybody just stood up and if read some of them in conversation with each other, we'd have a piece of theater. Truly. Yeah, um, is there anything else that we should have asked you but haven't asked you? No. No. Okay. No, I'm always willing to talk, but I, I feel very delighted, honored, and satisfied by the conversation we've had, and I thank you for it. Thank you. I feel very honored that you've come to visit us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Today was a really special experience, so thank you very much. I'm so glad. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. It was great for me, too. I love Sarah Lawrence. I really love <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening, and please tune in next time for our next guest artist.